Dr. Howard Ralph is as rare as some of the species he treats. He's not only a qualified veterinary surgeon, he's a doctor of human medicine too. Oh, well, look at all the wildlife. There's a little wallaby that's just darted off. We arrive at Southern Cross Wildlife Care in the southern tablelands of New South Wales. Just straight through there. What do we have in there? On the outside, it looks like a country homestead, but on the inside, it could easily be a high-tech human hospital if it weren't for the wildlife lining up in the waiting room. I'm coming in. I'm about to gown up. This is high fashion. On the day we visit, Dr Howard and his wife Glenda are treating one of our most iconic Australian animals. Howard, I've got my blue gown on. I'm matching you. Good. What are we about to do in here? We're going to do a procedure on this little baby kangaroo that mother's been killed and the little joey is left with a, several fractures of both legs so we're going to give it an anesthetic and take an x-ray of his legs and then we're going to what's called reduce them that is to change the direction of the fracture site so that it can be in the proper alignment and then splint both legs so that they can heal in the right manner what are kangaroos like as patients Kangaroos are like any other patient. They've got their own individual capacities and their own individual response to examination and treatment and recovery, but they do vary a lot. You know, there are some that are more calm than others and some who've had a very bad introduction to human contact, often because their mother's been smashed and killed on the road. So their first contact with us is traumatic. And we understand that, and we do our very best to accommodate that problem. Has this little guy got a name yet? Yes, he's called Anthony. Anthony? That's a proper name, isn't it? Very proper. Tell me about the animals that you're treating here. What types of native animals are you seeing? Our charter includes all species. We, We don't differentiate between little birds and large kangaroos. They all need help. They're all living creatures, and so we'll treat anybody. Um, Many of the problems that we see are are the result of human intervention, either motor vehicle accidents are a big part of it. Uh, We see a lot of cruelty. Um, Of course, there are things like uh, kangaroos being caught in fences and other creatures being running into something, like birds tend to fly into windows and get head injuries, and we see bats that have been caught on wire and blown around in the cyclone, all that sort of thing. So we'll treat anybody for any problem and we would never refuse a treatment. Just even driving down here, I saw dead wombats, dead kangaroos. I mean, it does become a little bit of a normal sight, unfortunately for us Aussies, when we're driving down country roads. Do you think we should have more empathy for those animals lying on the side of the road? I do. I sure do, and the fact is that if people were to think about it just for one millisecond, they would understand that they're living creatures and having yourself smashed to bits and left on the side of the road is a very bad place to be. So people more now are are attending to that and those who are a bit enlightened will get in contact with us or one of the rescue groups and so more critters are being rescued from the road and particularly... In our case, we see a lot of motor vehicle injuries and particularly a lot of young critters, whether they be wombats or 
young birds or young kangaroos and wallabies and so on that are actually still in the pouch if they're marsupials. And so we get to see lots and lots of very small patients with fairly significant injuries. Is it difficult to know how much anaesthetic to give such a little creature like that? Well, I suppose all anaesthetics depend on the patient as an individual and they all vary according to the species and type of anaesthetic. It's a complicated process, anaesthesia. And uh, it's not difficult to know. It's a matter of being careful to understand what you're doing and be respectful of the patient's needs. Pain is potentially a fatal condition, particularly for wildlife. And they suffer very badly from not only pain, but stress and all that sort of contact they weren't expecting. And they get certain conditions that mostly wildlife get. So that pain relief is part of the process of avoiding that problem. I just saw a little wombat out there and he had a broken femur. He wasn't squealing or doing anything. Um, Is that unusual or is that something wildlife just are much more stoic? The fact is that they do feel pain like any other living creature. And the fact that they're quiet and they don't display that is partly because of the fact that if you're a wild creature and you're out there and a predator's trying to get you, the worst thing to do is to show that you've compromised. And so if you stand around limping or complaining or squealing, then the predator will aim for you. So they try to keep that away from public view. And of course, we regard it as a predator. And so they don't like to show us overtly that they've got a lot of pain. We know that they have because we know that all creatures have capacity to feel pain. And we also know that because we've had a lot to do with them over the years, and a very careful examination tells us straight away that they've got a lot of pain. So we take that as a priority and we deal with their pain right from first contact and that doesn't just mean an injection, that can mean splinting or you know, calming them down or whatever it takes to put them in a situation where the pain is mitigated. Howard, you did something really special to just settle in the little patient you're about to treat. You, you just put your hand on him just talk me through that process. Well, we know that the evidence is that with any patient, whether it be a kangaroo or wombat or a small human primate child, the fact is that the first contact with a treating physician or anybody is the time that they will remember. And so that contact needs to be a reasonable one, a compassionate and respectful one. So that it is our protocol that every patient that we get, we introduce ourselves and we get them used to the fact that we're there because we smell different to the carer, we sound different, we have a different approach to everything. And so it's a really, really important thing to introduce yourself to that little one or a big one for that matter, and let them get used to you before you start prodding and poking and and causing them a little bit of pain. He's closing his little front paws. What what does that mean? That means he's concerned. He's concerned about being here in a strange environment, away from mother, surrounded by these very large human primates, many of them, all looking at him. Dressed in blue gowns. Dressed in blue gowns and hats. He's naturally concerned about why am I here? But that'll be fine. We're going to give him an anaesthetic now and move on. So you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. 
Howard tells me the clinic wouldn't be possible without Glenda by his side. I tend to try and ease the passage of a very busy day. So try to organise it so it runs smoothly, keep people calm in the waiting room because they often have to wait a long time and people get a bit weary of having to wait. They've got a long way to travel and being in a remote area, driving back in the dark is not fun. Plus the nature of the work is tiring. So it's never starts off one way. I've constantly got to rejuggle things and try and keep everyone going smoothly, not getting upset because of the waiting times. Glenda, what's it like working with your husband? How am I going to answer that question? Um, Honestly. Honestly. I sometimes feel it's hard to keep up with him, to be quite honest. But it is amazing. I sort of, it's often people think about the work that you do and I think it more, it's not so much work, it's a passion that you have and like with all passions, it comes with a cost, really. Okay, kiddo, here we go. We keep him in his pouch because he's comfortable in there and warm. And in this case, we're giving him a, a volatile or gaseous anaesthetic. So he's going to breathe that now for a while until he's moved through the various stages of anaesthesia to a point where we can um, do the procedure. Howard has had a powerful impact on not only the animals he treats, but humans too, including one of the vet nurses in surgery today, former Miss World Belinda Green. My whole life changed when I met Howard. My life was, you know, very much the television and the modelling and all that rah-rah, and I've always had a great love of animals, and uh, particularly when I went to live in the bush and I had a sick wallaroo, someone had mentioned Howard and his work, so I bought Max the wallaroo here, that day when I put him down in the consult room, and Max was a pretty big animal, just the way Howard, he touched Max and he talked to Max. It was like I wasn't even in the room. You know, he just related directly to the animal. I just could see that compassion that Howard had. I mean, it sounds really strange saying it, but the day I met Howard, I fell in love with him. You know, he's just the most amazing human being and um, his intelligence um, goes beyond any any person I've ever met in my life. So you can imagine I was pretty impressed. And then I said, could I come here as a volunteer? And that developed into helping with some of the vet nursing. And I said, could I do my training under you to qualify as a vet nurse and come and work here more professionally? And Howard said, of course. And he guided me through it in a lot of ways. But in other ways, he sort of put me in the deep end and, and you learn fast. So how would you describe Howard? If someone said, oh, I've heard a lot about that Howard Ralph, oh, how would he, you describe him? He comes him? across as a very serious person. He does. Uh, very serious. And to the extent I remember at first, I was always very nervous when I was around him, you know, about doing the right thing. And I can remember uh, one of my animals, I think it was Freddie, in the consult room, you know, he pooed. And I went, oh, goodness me. And so I just grabbed the tissues and quickly quit the poo up and put it in my pocket. He said, Belinda, give it to me. And it gave it to him and he put it in the bin like a normal person would do. But I was just so nervous thinking, whoops, my baby's had a little, you know, accident here. But, you know, that's what happens, of course, with animals. But when you get to know him, he has got the driest, most wonderful, 
wonderful sense of humour. I've seen him when we've had a success and we've worked at something and worked at something and, and once it's come together and it's stabilised, I've seen him do like a little Irish jig thinking, yes. So I see his highs. I also see his lows. I have seen you know, when things haven't been successful and he's just with grief slumped over the operating table on top of the animal saying, I'm so sorry. And we all leave the room. Howard's success rate is just incredible, whereas people seem to have this thing, oh, it's just wildlife. And Australian wildlife, to me, is just incredible. It's unique. Of course, wildlife will be wild. What, have you sustained any injuries yourself from what, what's some of the downside of the job in regards to treating wild animals, wild patients? Depends on the patient and depends on how alert I am. I, I try to be alert and proactive to avoid injury, but now and again you get bitten or kicked or whatever, and so it's a regular event for me to be um, dealt some sort of a blow <laughs> by a patient, but I don't worry about that. That's my fault for not being vigilant. We go to great lengths, in fact, to avoid injury so that we don't allow any of the staff or anyone else to be kicked by a large kangaroo. We, we try to allow... Um, our staff and others to not be bitten by a possum or a large bird or whatever. So we go about that in a respectful and reasonable manner to avoid injury. But it does happen, and when it does happen, I think that's my fault. Would you like me to take your coat off you, Howard, now? I'll just make sure that that will work. I'm just adjusting this fracture side now, putting it back in position. So that we can then put the splint on. I think people who love animals recognise other people who love animals. There's no doubt about that. Yes, that's true. One does get a feeling and you can tell straight away the way people respond to other creatures. And, of course, because we're all animals anyway, there is a, a communication that occurs, whether it be with an orangutan that can see right through you or whether it be a, a wombat that just wants to get away or whether it be a rhino that's going to stomp on you or whatever. And, and birds, the same thing. Birds have their way of communicating. And even when you think about creatures like marine mammals and they have a way of communicating which is maybe not verbal. They make sounds in water, but when they're out of water and, and beached, and suffering, they have a way of communicating which is very hard to describe, but you can feel it. And in answer to your original question, the fact is that people who are there to help, you can tell the way that they respond and react and approach other species is very obvious. Their body language is obvious and the way they communicate with each other about the patient, all of that is very obvious. You've got to always focus on the positive and the positive is we are all doing the best we can with the knowledge and the limitations we have because we have enormous limitations here with equipment 
and finances and huge electricity bills and things like that. And um, it's all voluntary. So we really do rely on donation to, to keep this running. So sometimes there may be a better option or a better piece of equipment, but we maybe just don't have it. And that's very difficult for someone as gifted as Howard to work under that kind of pressure or limitation. Mm, It's very hard. What's the best outcome for Anthony? The best outcome is that all his fractures will heal in the right position and he will then mobilise and get full function for both legs and he'll be able to hop soon when he's old enough and then he'll be off to the wild, released. But that's a little way down the track. His main thing now is he's got to grow up a bit more before that happens. So Howard, you are at an age that most people might be thinking about retiring but you continue to work 100 hours a week. What keeps you going? What keeps you getting up every morning? Well, the fact is that what we do is an essential service, we think, for the wildlife because they really find it difficult to get what I think is adequate help. And the reason that we keep going is that we know that there's a desperate need and and the need we can't really fulfil the whole of because there are just too many injured wildlife for us to deal with. But we do our best and therefore we often work through the night to take up the slack and try to treat every patient that we see because we would never, ever refuse treatment for a patient. So every day there's more and it never stops. And so I will never retire. One on the right. One press. Working tirelessly to meet the never-ending demand can take its toll. Even though he's my husband, I believe he's one of these very quite unique people, to be quite honest. I think he has a gift which he tries to do a lot in his one lifetime, and that's the problem. I think he has a huge capacity to do wondrous things given the chance. Um, and in trying to do that, it's I think you question your abilities, you question that you haven't done enough. He often um, says to me that I haven't achieved anything and yet others from the outside, when they think of even his qualifications, they think, how can you say that? Um, He's a very humble man, uh, a very gentle man and I think it's just one of these unique individuals. I know he's my husband but I, I, I truly believe that. Do you encourage him to have downtime, a little bit of off time, go home and maybe not think about work for a while? I don't think we actually ever do that. He's the one that will, he pushes himself. Often I'm always the one that will say, look, we just can't keep going, we need to have a break. But Howard tends to, with all the people he works with, inspire you to give a little bit more. He'll often say, look, I know it's hard, I know we're tired, but it needs to be done. And that just seems to sustain you a little bit longer. Now we'll need to turn him over. Okay. So on your call. So I'm going to say one, two, three, turn. Okay, one, two, three, turn. Thank you. Okay, thank you folks. Okay, thank you. 
What I'm doing is trying to fulfil an enormous need, not for me, but for my patients. And if we don't get up and attend to our patients, they don't get attended. And that is something that you just cannot abide at all. If I know that there's a patient suffering, I have to deal with it. And if that's five times a day or ten times a minute, it doesn't matter. The fact of the matter is that they need help and the reason I'm here is to help them. And if I don't do that, I can't really relax in any way at all and think, well, I'm doing something else. It just wouldn't work. So while there's a need, we'll fulfil that need. Dr Howard Ralph is one of the most kind-hearted, dedicated wildlife vets I have ever met. The day we visited, it was like a wildlife war zone. People with broken and injured animals lining up in the waiting room. One by one, each patient received 100% of Howard's undivided attention. And at an age when most people have long retired, I get a sense that his mission to save our injured wildlife and make a difference really is something he will never give up on. Where All Animals was presented by me, Tracy Preston, producer Ludimovich, executive producer Liv Proud, sound production by Matt Nikolic, creative direction by Jennifer Goggin.